Mr. Lambert, I'm holding in my hand an object. Would you kindly tell the court what this object is? It's a, it's, you're holding, um, Mr. Lambert, what is it? Is it a cap? <laughs> is it a lady's slipper? <laughs> it isn't by any chance a red wig, is it? Well, let's try it with the lights on. How about now, Mr. Lambert? I can see... I can see that something's there. But you can't identify it, not even with the lights on. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out all of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast called To the 90s and Beyond. And as you can imagine, it covers films of the 1990s, but a little bit more of a twist. It also covers films that were influenced or sequels to those films that came out in the 1990s, but also the 1980s as well. So a companion podcast to this one. Check out that link at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second of this three-part series looking at Hitchcockian films of the 1980s, specifically by directors who have won the Academy Award for Best Director for other movies, but these are top-notch Hitchcockian films by top-notch directors. Last episode I looked at Robert Benton's Still of the Night. Of course, Robert Benton won the Academy Award for Kramer vs. Kramer. Today I'm going to be looking at the director who won the Best Director Award at the Academy Awards. His name is Curtis Hansen, and in 1987 he directed a film called The Bedroom Window. The Bedroom Window is an R-rated film. It does have nudity, sexuality, violence, and language. The runtime is an hour and 52 minutes. Steve Gutenberg is the main star. Elizabeth McGovern and Isabel Huppert get sizable secondary roles. Paul Shinar, Carl Lumbly, Wallace Shawn, Frederick Coffin, Brad Greenquist, and Maury Chaikin are also in the film. As I mentioned, Curtis Hansen is the director, but he also provided the screenplay. Now, back in the early 1980s, filmmaker Curtis Hansen, he had just come off of directing this sophomore comedy, this teen comedy called Losing It, which was about a group of young American men who traveled to Tijuana, Mexico to lose their virginity. At the time, it was relatively obscure because it had relatively unknown actors, but those actors would later become, soon enough, big stars, specifically Tom Cruise and Shelley Long. Although this film was poorly distributed in theaters at the time, it did find a lot of success in its second life on cable and on video because of those stars, and that found him getting more offers. But unfortunately, those offers were for more teen-oriented flicks to do as a follow-up. Now, Hansen wasn't really interested in doing more of the same, so he looked toward the kind of project that he might personally find exciting to do as his next project. 
He recalled when he was thinking about what he should do, this relatively obscure 1971 mystery novel that he had read by this English author named Anne Holden. It was called The Witnesses. And this was something he had in the back of his mind that was something that could harken back to the kinds of movies that he really enjoyed, those old Hitchcock films, those film noir movies that he so very much enjoyed and sparked his passion for cinema. Now, this was the kind of vehicle that could really show to the world his ability to craft a good story, good story construction in his screenwriting. And if he could also direct it, that would really show off his sense of style, and that would catapult him, he felt, to do the kinds of well-crafted films aimed at adults that he had wanted to do. He envisioned when he thought about this uh, film, wet streets, skewed camera angles, a lot of rain, very moody, characters quickly traversing from one location to another in a hurry, something atmospheric but very exciting. Holden's book concerned this woman named Sylvia Mason. She was a married mother of two, Sylvia's husband. He was a, a big financial success, but... Unfortunately, he lacked the kind of excitement that she craved in a romantic partner. So, as we meet her in the story, she's engaged in this extramarital affair with a divorced man named Terrence. While at Terrence's flat, dressing up to go home after their adulterous act, Sylvia looks out of Terrence's window, overlooking this park square below, and she witnesses a man suddenly springing out of the shadows to assault this young woman walking along the path. Terence awakens from sleep when Sylvia screams out and the neighbors gather, saving the girl from further abuse as the perpetrator scampers away. But, due to their adulterous relationship, Sylvia decides to keep mum about identifying the culprit to the authorities. Sometime later, when she's reading a newspaper, she discovers that there was another assault that happened to a different girl in the same area that ended up dying. Sylvia becomes racked with guilt over the next few days. It seems like maybe she's the only one who had seen what the murderer looks like. Exposing the truth, though, would ruin her marriage as well as her own reputation. But she has a novel idea. If she were to give the description of that man and the details of the assault to Terrence, maybe he could go to the police and say he was the one who witnessed the incident on the hope that the murderer could be apprehended before anyone else dies. That's the start of the premise. Of course, things get a little twisty after that in the original novel. Hansen felt that this story could make for a great noirish Hitchcockian thriller genre flick, the ones that he very much enjoyed. Unfortunately, he discovered after he wrote this spec script that Paramount Pictures had possession of the rights to The Witnesses since the time of its publication. He consulted Paramount, with whom he had worked previously on a revision for 1982's White Dog, if they'd like to use his spec script. He'd even direct it. Paramount did consider this, but they wanted some script changes, and they also wanted not him, but a more experienced director attached. Hansen suggested his friend, fellow director Don Siegel, which was acceptable because he was a very talented and veteran director. However, after Hansen's script got reworked to their satisfaction, Siegel ended up declining because of salary negotiation, salary demands that Paramount was not willing to meet, and that eventually resulted in Paramount losing interest in the picture. However, they were willing to work out a deal to relinquish the book rights in turnaround so that Hansen could shop the script elsewhere. Enter screenwriter Robert Town. He was at Paramount. He was negotiating a proposed sequel to Chinatown at the time, and that's when he stumbled across Hansen's script. 
he was familiar with Hansen. He had met him back in the late 1960s when Hansen was this photojournalist who took pictures of Faye Dunaway that eventually became instrumental in Warner Brothers accepting her as their Bonnie in Bonnie and Clyde. Hansen was visiting the set of Bonnie and Clyde, where Town was performing work as a script doctor at the time, and they were friends pretty much ever since. Town told Hansen that his script, entitled The Bedroom Window, that was the best script he had read in five years that he didn't write himself, and so he decided he was going to help him get it set up somewhere else. Hansen was very pleased at this turn of events, but he did tell Town that he really wanted to direct this film. So whatever studio he took it to should at least allow that. After an initial go-ahead at 20th Century Fox fell through, Town took the script to independent film producer and studio head Dino De Laurentiis, who immediately accepted to turn it into an upcoming feature. Town vouched for Hansen's talent as a director, and he also agreed to continue working as a liaison between Dino and Hansen for the production. He would basically foster this to its conclusion. Town would serve as the executive producer for The Bedroom Window and guide Hansen through a script for what Dino wanted to achieve in order to make the film sellable to the public. Using Town as a sounding board, Hansen strayed from Holden's novel in significant ways. He shifted the focus from Sylvia to Terence, called Terry in his script, and the emphasis on Sylvia's nervous breakdown was replaced by Terry's eventual growth into maturity. He also replaced the novel's assault victim from a young girl into an earthy cocktail bar waitress who becomes a catalyst for Terry's conversion. It was a story angle that he borrowed for something that he did he felt successfully for Susanna York's character in his earlier thriller called The Silent Partner. Hansen liked the notion of this victim that turns the tables on her assault to become the aggressor in the end. Striving to get away from yet another film in the Southern California suburbs, Hansen's original script was set in Seattle, Washington. And that was important because the premise of the story called for a smaller seaport city with gentrification projects and this mix of modern and historic buildings, as well as a bustling nightlife. However, De Laurentiis thought that Seattle was unnecessarily costly. So because interiors were going to be shot at the De Laurentiis Group's new studio, in Wilmington, North Carolina, that was done because North Carolina was a right-to-work state that allowed Dino to avoid having to pay union fees and adhere to union regulations. The object of filming there was to create a movie as good as they could make in Hollywood, but at half the cost. Still, the city of the setting needed to contain certain aspects that were important to the story. It had to be a mid-sized port town, one that was undergoing a lot of restoration projects where somebody like an architect like Sylvia's husband could be rich and powerful. It also had to have a, a classic look to give that film noir vibe, but it had to have at least one area that was run down and seedy, but also another that was very sophisticated and cosmopolitan. After traveling up and down the East Coast looking at different cities, Hansen made his decision on Baltimore after looking out of a window in an apartment building overlooking Mount Vernon Place, the city's cultural and historic center. It was also cinematically underexploited as a locale. Outside of a few Barry Levinson films, not very many films were set there. Two weeks of exteriors were set for Baltimore, especially the swanky, yuppie-populated New Baltimore area, and that would be followed by eight weeks at the Wilmington Studio. In the final version of Hanson's script, we follow Terry Lambert, Terry's a businessman, he's in this high-rolling Baltimore architectural firm, and Terry's also having an affair with his boss's alluring French wife, 
Sylvia Wentworth. After their latest coupling, they're startled by a scream from the courtyard outside, and rushing to the window, Sylvia shrieks as she sees an assault on a woman at the hands of a red-headed male with pale skin. However, she can't report it to the authorities. She desperately doesn't want her affair to become known by her wealthy husband, Colin. Terry thinks that he would be doing the honorable thing if he could pretend that it was he who saw the actual assault, and he suspects that there may be a connection between it and the series of murders that are occurring in the area. However, circumstances lead to Terry himself becoming implicated in the murder, and the only person who ends up willing to help Terry is this cocktail waitress named Denise, who happened to have been that assault victim that was saved by Sylvia's shrieking. Of course, there is more to the story than that, but I won't go into overt spoilers if I can help it here. Steve Gutenberg, as I mentioned, is the star of the film. Now, Gutenberg was not Curtis Hansen's first choice to star. He wasn't even on his list of preferred actors, not even a, a thought. Went into thinking that Steve Gutenberg could play this role. But it just so happened that Steve Gutenberg's agent, a woman named Tony Howard, she managed to get a copy of the script and she encouraged Gutenberg to read it. Gutenberg did like it. It was something classy, it was elegant, and it it was something that kept him riveted right to the very end. All of the other agents that he knew at the William Morris Agency thought that, you know, maybe pursuing this would be a waste of time. He should really look at more comedies. They were offering him like three different comedies a week, and they were substantially higher paychecks than this would be paying. Dino De Laurentiis, when he was contacted by Gutenberg, he really liked that idea. He encouraged Hansen to use Gutenberg after seeing his likable comic charisma in films like Police Academy and Cocoon, because Dino felt that Gutenberg's comedic personality could lure in audiences that were beyond thriller regulars. Hansen and Town were skeptical, but they did agree to meet Gutenberg for dinner at Dino's mansion to talk about the role's requirements and to see if he might fit those needs. Gutenberg loved the idea of playing against type, and he thought this would be a big break into doing more leading man roles. Plus, he already had a familiarity and enjoyment for shooting in Baltimore. He had appeared in Diner for Barry Levinson. By the end of the meeting, Hansen came to a similar conclusion as Dino. The film could use somebody like Gutenberg because of his overwhelming enthusiasm and his sense of humor. Elizabeth McGovern was Hansen's only choice to play Denise, the assaulted waitress. He basically wrote it with her in mind. She had played objects of desire in prior films, Once Upon a Time in America and Lovesick. Hansen felt that McGovern should really play a role where her beauty was a secondary consideration. Terry is supposed to find her character, Denise, very plain until he begins to see her in a different light and sees that inner beauty that also accentuates her outer beauty. McGovern was excited to play here a street-smart and straightforward character. She had not played one like that before. It was very different from her own personality. This was a real stretch for her, she thought. However, the script did call for her to perform a scene in the nude, something she was dead set on getting away from doing anymore in film. She loved the script. She thought Hanson was going to keep it tasteful. She trusted him. But it wasn't until she discussed it with her parents that she came to accept the role, because her mother reminded her that they'd already seen her raped in Once Upon a Time in America, so just appearing nude in this film was going to be nothing. In the end, despite all of her protestations about having to do a nude scene and whether she was going to do the film at all, her nude scene was never shot. There were time and scheduling issues had them drop that particular scene. 
although the character of Sylvia was written for an American, when they were compiling a list of actresses that could deliver some sort of femme fatale glamour, Isabel Huppert's name did arise. She was somebody not very well known in America. She was dubbed as the Meryl Streep of France, but Huppert... She had only one significant role in a Hollywood film, Michael Cimino's 1980 debacle, Heaven's Gate. Hansen debated the choice of Huppert, but he did conclude that Huppert offered a sophistication as a French woman as well as an older woman. She was somebody who would seek Terry for nothing more than a fling. She had no intention of leaving her comfortable life, and that would be very fitting for the role. He also thought that she made for a a fitting counterbalance to McGovern's character because he painted McGovern's character, Denise, as a common woman of lower social standing, and that eventually would draw out a kind of a commentary on the choice for Terry between pursuing a fantasy, like Sylvia, or embracing reality, like Denise. And that was not dissimilar to Scotty's dilemma between reconciling Madeline Elster and Judy Barton in Vertigo. Terry placed so much value on obtaining a woman above his station, especially his boss's wife, that he was overlooking the qualities of true blue earnest women around him, like Denise. Huppert eagerly accepted the part when it was offered, not only to make further inroads in American films, but this was a refreshingly fun and glamorous role. She had just done a string of depressed victims in movies, so this was going to be all for fun. She enjoyed what she called the bitchy femme fatale homage, and she channeled, in particular, Lauren Bacall and Betty Davis for her portrayal of Sylvia. She viewed Sylvia as externally driven, but internally fairly weak and selfish, because she doesn't want to give up the life of creature comforts that being married to a wealthy and powerful man afforded her. She serves merely as the allure to Terry to step further into the world of doing things for selfish reasons of his own, and something that he would later learn to regret. Meanwhile, the role of Chris Henderson, who is the serial murderer in the film, that went to a stage actor from Richmond, Virginia, not too far away, Brad Greenquist, who was also here cast against type. Greenquist was known as a very nice guy outside of the role, but he found his inner evil by studying various characters in plays that he had done by Shakespeare. He has only two lines in the script, so there wasn't much to to rehearse on how to play the part, but he was able to steal his character through his mostly silent scenes with help from Shakespeare's Richard III and Edmund from King Lear. He determined he was going to act more with his eyes and in his mouth to try to evoke what his character was thinking. The production would prove challenging for both the cast and the crew. The weather for the Baltimore shoot proved very unpredictable. Excessive wind and rain caused sudden rearrangements in the schedule, so actors and the crew were scrambling to prepare an interior scene on rainy days. Martha Schumacher, Dino's wife, she was the lion producer, and both of them wanted to stay under the proposed $8 million budget and to work fast to stay on their tight schedule. The first casualty among the crew was the entire camera crew. They were fired within the first week of filming and replaced by Dino's team from Rome. Unfortunately, this team did not speak English, and they weren't prepped at all with any of Hansen's instructions. To add further confusion, they were also working from scripts that Dino had translated into Italian. Hansen, whose demeanor through all this was always even-tempered and methodical, very patient, he kept his composure throughout all of these changes except for one particular argument. He wanted to replace his Dino-assigned Italian cinematographer with Gil Taylor. That was somebody that Hansen had worked with on his prior film, Losing It. Taylor was also a veteran 
uh, cinematographer. He shot big films like Star Wars and Dr. Strangelove, but he also had experience in thrillers. He did some for Roman Polanski, including Repulsion and Cul-de-Sac. He also worked with Alfred Hitchcock himself for 1972's Frenzy, even Detractors of the Bedroom Window. If you see this film, you will concede that it's handsomely photographed. Nevertheless, Americans in the crew were constantly being replaced by the Italians, you know, a couple every week. Penny-pinching Dino was very worried about this film going over budget, so he replaced some of the costlier people with ones that were willing to work from Italy. He also threatened to replace Hanson himself if the film were to fall behind schedule. The Americans would uh, try to communicate with the Italians. They used sketch pads and hand gestures to communicate what was needed, at least until they developed some sort of verbal shorthand that they were able to, to communicate. Eventually, the assistant director also quit, causing Hansen in town to perform his function at least until a new one could be brought in. Hansen alleviated all of this tension on the set with a lot of humor and laughter. Many dalliances did spring up among members of the production, including Gutenberg, who was having an affair with one of the equipment drivers as something to keep him occupied during the downtime. Although the bedroom window does contain the innocent man accused Hitchcock trope, Hansen emphasized that his protagonist really is not so innocent. He wants to do the right thing, of course, here, but he does it in all the wrong ways and for all the wrong reasons because he's trying to cover up something of his own and he's even willing here to break the law and to lie under oath to try to stop the person he feels is responsible. So he's no innocent here. Hansen felt that this was foolish anyway to try to one-up Hitchcock, at least in style. He wanted his picture to stand on its own instead of seem like some sort of genre tribute or some sort of homage, or worse, just a Hitchcock ripoff. He despised films that existed only as some sort of nostalgic nod to earlier films anyway. In addition to nods to Hitchcock, there's also an homage to the father of the American mystery himself, Edgar Allan Poe, who spent the latter part of his life in Baltimore. A fictitious neon-decorated brick mason bar named Edgar's was created that featured his visage and his quotes, and that's where Denise, the cocktail waitress, is employed. In addition to the production problems, there were a few snags for the actors in playing certain scenes, and here's where it helped to have Robert Town oversee the project because he was willing to step in as a writer to try to smooth out some of the rougher parts of the Hansen script so that these actors could get through it. Hansen did enjoy Steve Gutenberg's intuitive approach to acting. He went all in on what he felt would work at the moment. Upper and McGovern were a little bit different. They were more methodical than Gutenberg, and they preferred that their motivations and their actions be planned out prior to each scene rather than during it. Dino, though, kept urging Gutenberg to be as funny and as upbeat as he seemed in the Police Academy movies because he felt that he was acting a little too serious, at least early on in the shoot. Even though this was a thriller and a fairly serious one at its heart, Dino still wanted to sell the movie to those comedy fans, which meant a charming lead performance by Gutenberg that would draw in that extra crowd. The release date for The Bedroom Window was postponed. It was originally supposed to appear in November of 1986, but it was it was delayed to January of 1987. And that was specifically because DEG, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, felt that the film would play longer and in better theaters if it weren't muscled out by big Christmas releases. If it were released in mid-November as intended, it would only have a couple of weeks before those big Christmas releases came out and stole all of those theaters away. 
However, they felt if it were released in mid-January, instead, it could probably play for six or seven weeks in a lot of those theaters, because those big Christmas time releases would have fizzled out by then. Meanwhile, they were struggling with how they wanted to really market the bedroom window. They weren't really sure how audiences were going to perceive it based on the cast, especially would this be perceived as a comedy or a thriller or a romance. They performed some test screenings, and many of the preview cards that came back from these test audiences mentioned that they loved, in particular, the Hitchcockian plot. So they decided, as a selling point, they were going to completely go all in on emphasizing Hitchcock in all of their advertisements. Unfortunately, all of this thought went into the marketing, but the gamble did not pay off. The bedroom window did finish only in seventh place on its opening weekend in mid-January. It really struggled against what's surprisingly robust, popular Christmas releases like Crocodile Dundee and Star Trek IV and all of these other films that had a lot of legs at the theater. It fell out of most theaters after about a month, earning just over $12 million dollars off of its $8 million budget, not counting advertisement and such. So reviews were mixed, although there were some really strongly positive ones, especially by female critics who really lauded that the female character, the victim, would end up taking control of her situation, something that was relatively novel for the mid-1980s. Curtis Hansen would go on to do bigger and better things, of course, including L.A. Confidential, 8 Mile, Wonder Boys, and a whole host of other well-known films. But this early attempt in his career to rekindle the Hitchcockian thriller, it does work well for what it tries to do, even without those vaunted Hitchcock stars like Cary Grant or Ingrid Bergman to elevate it. Steve Gutenberg, you know, he's no Cary Grant, but he's known primarily, obviously, for lowbrow comedies, but... I do think he acquits himself quite well in this straight dramatic role. While you may not see anything in Gutenberg's performance to suggest an Oscar-worthy talent was buried somewhere in there, he did manage to exude a sense of charm, this romantic hero that translates pretty well into what ends up being a relatively subtle performance. He didn't ham it up, as Dino might have been encouraging him to. And in the end, we do identify with his plight, even if he's doing a lot of the wrong things for the wrong reasons, we still understand why he's doing them. Unlike other Hitchcock imitators, Hansen here doesn't really copy Hitchcock's stylish camera work so much as tap into that those storylines that Hitchcock really did employ in a lot of his thrillers throughout his career. I do think that the, the bedroom window does falter somewhat in its second half, at least compared to its first. I think the buildup is better. Then the, uh, as, as with so many thrillers, the buildup is generally better than how it ends up in the end. But I do think that this is a film that doesn't really lose your attention if you're really into thrillers. It does dip in plausibility, but you'll still stay, stay with it. It's kind of a fun film. You're willing to suspend your disbelief because you like the characters and you're intrigued by the situations. In addition to the aforementioned surprising turn by Gutenberg, I think it does feature alluring performances. The younger here, Isabel Huppert, who would go on to even bigger and better things after this as well, she's quite good and, and arresting in this film. And the earthy but still pretty sexy companion played well by McGovern, I think it's one of her stronger roles of this period. It may never really remotely come close to rivaling Hitchcock, but I do think that for a more modern twist on a classic formula, the bedroom window is well worth looking into if you're into the Hitchcockian fare, especially. So I will give 
the bedroom window, three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that this is worth a look if you like this kind of movie, if you're a big Hitchcock buff, or if you just like your thrillers, especially of the 1980s. I definitely do think that at some point, the bedroom window should be on your list of films that you might want to catch up on for a fun time. You know, just don't take it too seriously, I guess, and you will have the right frame of mind to enjoy it for what it is, for the diversion that it is. So three stars out of four is what I give The Bedroom Window. Now, The Bedroom Window, even though it wasn't a huge hit at the time, kind of broke even, I guess, the premise did manage to continue on. It's a really good premise. So other filmmakers over the years have decided that they might want to give it a crack. In fact, back in 2009, Kevin Williamson, who was the screenwriter for a lot of the Scream films, he announced he was actually going to script a remake of The Bedroom Window, and he planned to release it sometime between the fourth and the fifth Scream movies that he was working on for Outer Banks Entertainment. Williamson wanted to incorporate more of the Anne Holden novel, in particular a lot of the stuff that Hansen left out of his version. However, it languished in development secrecy, at least until 2014 when it was announced that Kaylee Cuoco was going to be playing Denise and Christian Nikolai as Terry, but unfortunately it never did quite get its release and eventually Williamson was out. Now, in 2017, there was a thriller that was released that was of a very similar vein, although it was kind of a gender-reversed version of The Bedroom Window, and it was called Never Here. It wasn't a remake of The Bedroom Window, but its writer-director, Camille Thoman, admitted that she did see the Curtis Hansen film when she was a kid, and it may have subconsciously inspired her to make Never Here, although it was not an intentional act on her part. In 2019, Studio Canal and Blumhouse announced that they were going to be collaborating to remake The Bedroom Window, and that was put into development, and it was announced that Ben Young was going to write and direct, but nothing was heard from it since then. And then in 2021, Studio Canal was not collaborating with Blumhouse anymore on it. They were now collaborating with the picture company to develop The Bedroom Window, and this time from a script by Abby Ajayi. And Ajayi said that her take was going to be more of a female-driven version, and it would look at issues like gender dynamics and male aggression in particular, so a little bit more heavy on some of the themes there. So will we ever see The Bedroom Window again? Well, obviously there are other people who want to remake it, Probably not in the same fashion, but that plot is very alluring to a lot of people. So I think it's already come up three times into development in the last 15 years. So perhaps we will see somebody take it all the way to the finish line in the end at some point in the near future. But until then, we do have the fun Curtis Hansen version to look back on. If you have your own thoughts on the bedroom window that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram are also there. Email is the best way to get in touch if you're so inclined. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, well, which Oscar-winning director also directed a thriller in the 1980s? Well, I mentioned him once during the body of this review. Roman Polanski, who in 1988 directed a film starring Harrison Ford, also with a French actress in a secondary role, but not surprising because the film is actually set in Paris, and it's called Frantic from 1988. Definitely worth a look if you want to check that out before I get into the review on the next episode. 
And by the way, Robert Town also contributed to the script to Frantic as well. So something to look forward to. I've seen this film many times, but it's been a while since I've seen it. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that film. So check that out. And thank you, everyone, for joining me here as we continue our journey around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 